This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most common way that the meniscus is injured is with degenerative wear and tear, microtrauma. So repetitive bending and twisting movements will overload the meniscus and slowly lead to a tear. If we look at people over the age of 50 who have a little bit of arthritis in their knee, over 60% of these people will have a meniscus tear. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss the connection between type 2 diabetes and heart disease. We'll learn what to look for in health and wellness products. We'll find out about the treatment of meniscus tears. And lastly, we'll explore building muscle as we age. But first, a little bit of business. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. Dr. Alice Cheng is an endocrinologist at Trillium Health Partners, Credit Valley in Mississauga, and St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. She's an associate professor at the University of Toronto and was chair of the 2013 Diabetes Canada Clinical Practice Guidelines. She's the co-chair of the 2018 Diabetes Canada CSEM Professional Conference, and she's new to the show. Welcome to the Tonic, Doctor. So I've got a question for you. February's heart month, but we're going to talk about diabetes? Absolutely. It may seem a little bit confusing, but it actually makes a whole lot of sense. Diabetes and heart disease are incredibly linked because oftentimes people who live with heart disease also have diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, and oftentimes people who live with type 2 diabetes have heart disease. So therefore, the two tend to go hand in hand. So do the two diseases have common risk factors? Yes. So when we think about heart disease in particular, there are a set of risk factors that we discuss. Things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, body weight, family history, and they're actually very closely linked with that of diabetes. So in fact, the presence of diabetes is one of the risk factors for heart disease to occur. And often, someone with diabetes will also have things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol, as well as family history. So that they certainly share a lot of the risk factors, and it tends to be what we call bi-directional, meaning that heart disease and diabetes are linked, and diabetes and heart disease are linked. So you can almost picture them holding hands, unfortunately. So why are people with diabetes three times more likely to die of heart disease? Oftentimes when people think about diabetes, they're thinking about eyes and kidneys and feet, and the heart gets forgotten. However, it's important to remember that someone living with diabetes is at high risk of developing heart disease because of those common risk factors that tend to exist in the same individual. And therefore, they do go hand in hand. And heart disease remains one of the leading causes of death in general for the general population, but particularly for those living with diabetes. So it's very important 
that people living with diabetes assess themselves in terms of their own personal risk and, of course, have that conversation with their healthcare team in order to better understand what their risk is and what they can do to lower that risk. And when I say assess themselves, what they can do, for example, is go onto the Diabetes Canada website at diabetes.ca, and on there, there is a heart disease and stroke risk tool that is for self-assessment. And that's a very powerful tool to be able to understand what your own risk is, which will then allow for a, a great conversation with the healthcare team. So that tool, is that discuss some of the symptomology of both diseases, or is it presume that you are already diagnosed with one or the other? It presumes that you are diagnosed with diabetes, okay. and then it looks into what other risk factors you may have, which then sort of spits out at you what your risk may be. And the whole point of it is really as a conversation starter, is to make someone start thinking about those risk factors and then bring that information back to their healthcare team and then have that discussion about what, what can I do to reduce my risk. Okay. So I've heard a term that's been bandied about a bit, and it's a bit confusing, but what is the concept of prediabetes? Right. So prediabetes, I like to describe it as the waiting room before you get into the diabetes room. Okay. Uh, and and the, the technical definition would be looking at your blood test results to determine if you have prediabetes. So, for example, if it's the fasting blood sugar that has been measured in your blood, then it's a level of 6.1 to 6.9. Mm-hmm. If it's the A1C that's been measured in your blood, then it's a level of 6.0 to 6.4%. But what those numbers are, are there the numbers just before the, the line in the sand when you would cross that threshold to be called as having diabetes. But functionally what it is, is it's the stage before the sugars get high enough for us to make that call. But that state, the prediabetes state, is already an at-risk state because people with prediabetes are also at higher risk of developing the various complications. So it is relevant to identify because what you want to do is get out of that waiting room. What you want to do is go back, is go back into the quote-unquote normal glucose levels or sugar levels and reduce your risk. Right, and, and I guess I conceptualize it as a continuum, right? Like you're on a path. And unless you reverse your your direction, you're heading from no pre-diabetes to pre-diabetes to hopefully not. Absolutely. When you talk about the blood test, is this a blood work that would normally be done in a, in a regular checkup? Or is this something that you'd have to go to your doctor and say, I'm concerned and you know, I sh- maybe I should be tested for diabetes? The glucose tests or the sugar tests are done routinely by your primary care team. And typically it gets done... Uh, either annually or every three years, depending on your baseline risk. And in fact, on the Diabetes Canada website, there actually is a tool, another tool to assess your risk of developing diabetes. So for someone who's not sure if they're at risk, they can take that online tool test, which will give you whether you are low, intermediate, or high risk for developing diabetes. And based on that, that determines the frequency with which your healthcare team will order your glucose levels. But confidently, I think people can assume it's been done, but it's always good to ask the team, has it been done? When was it last done? And what were my numbers? Okay. So assuming, you know, you get the test and perhaps it's not what it could or should be, is there anything that the Canadians can do to reduce the risk of, of cardiovascular disease if they have diabetes? There are lots of things that can be done, and, and that's that's the, the good news out of all of this is that the, the power is very much in the person living with diabetes to help reduce that risk. 
I mean, reversing diabetes is not always possible, but controlling it definitely is. And we've got great tools now in terms of lifestyle things as well as medication things that are very effective to lower that risk of having a uh, heart attack or any kind of heart disease or or stroke risk as well. I presume you're, you're talking about lifestyle choices here, right? So what sort of things are we talking? I mean, like, to my mind, it seems pretty straightforward, but like, I presume it's, you know, at levels of activity, changes of diet. Is that the sort of things that you're talking about? So from a lifestyle perspective, yes. It's things about uh, food choices as well as physical activity and, and achieving a healthy body weight. Mm-hmm. And of course, very importantly, not smoking is a very important aspect of reducing that risk of heart disease. In your experience, how do you help patients understand the importance of the therapies that might be available to support uh, disease management? So on top of lifestyle changes, there are great medication tools that we have that have been proven in large studies, lots and lots of people, that it reduces the long-term risk of heart disease. And one of the ways that I try to convey that to my patients is that there are certain medications we give that we know will reduce risk independent of the blood pressure independent of the cholesterol levels. So I often like to say this medication is being given to you to reduce your risk of a heart attack or stroke. And therefore, as long as you have a heart, as long as you have a brain, it's important that we try to protect them and therefore it's important to continue these medications. I like to frame it that way because if we talk about specifically just blood pressure or just the cholesterol level, then sometimes people misunderstand. And when the levels come back next time at Target, then they think, okay, I'm at Target now, so now I can stop the medication. When in fact, we have great evidence that these medications, even when the targets are met, continue to provide protection. So that's why I like to frame it in the form of these medicines are there to protect you. So as long as you have the organs to protect, let's continue taking these medications. So, you know, we're talking about heart disease, and, and I think you just sort of touched upon it uh, in your last answer. We hear about lowering cholesterol, uh, particularly if you have type 2 diabetes and you want to lower your sugars. What else should patients who have these risks do to reduce the risks? So we talk about the A, B, C, D, E, S of vascular protection, meaning reducing risk of heart attack or stroke. And we use it as healthcare providers to remind us of all the things that are important, but we also share this with our patients to to remind them of all the things that are important. So A stands for A1C, which is the blood measure of glucose, of sugar. B is for blood pressure. C is for cholesterol. D represents drugs that protect the heart overall. E is for exercise and eating. And S is for smoking cessation or stopping smoking. So the A, B, C, D, E, S is is a very nice checklist of the things that together we know dramatically reduce the risk of heart attack or stroke. And I would encourage everyone who's listening to ask their doctors, how how are my A, B, C, D, E, S? And then I think it's it's a great thing for, for everybody to be following in order to track how things are going. When you say that, are you talking about somebody who's been diagnosed? Like, like for example, like you might get a sense... You're, you're having these issues and, you know, these are sort of common factors, right? A lot of people are carrying extra weight. A lot of pay, people may have higher blood pressure. If you haven't been diagnosed with diabetes, like what would you recommend, but you're having these issues or you have these preconditions, we'll call them, what should you do? Should you be speaking with your doctor? Should your doctor already be on top of it? Like how proactive do the patients need to be? The more proactive, the better. To answer your question, yes, your healthcare team should already be aware of these things 
should have already tested for them. However, that may or may not always be the case. So the more proactive the individual is, the better. And it's a matter of uh, knowing what your risk is, knowing what your numbers are, knowing what the targets are, and then understanding the actions one can take. So we've already alluded to food choices and physical activity and achieving a healthy body weight, uh, but there may very well be medications that would be appropriate in order to further reduce that risk. So absolutely, I would encourage everyone to be asking their team, uh, how, how is my heart and, and what is my risk and, and what can I do more to help reduce that risk? You know, from personal experience, my father didn't know that he was diabetic until he had a heart attack and needed uh, a bypass. Do you see that in your practice where people just simply aren't aware that they have diabetes? Absolutely, I do. And often the story is very similar. It's one of not having seen their healthcare team in a long time. Because uh, for many people, it's still a case of if I feel fine, I'm not going to go see the doctor. Right. However, we understand that preventative medicine is incredibly powerful. And if you don't go see your doctor, then there's no way that you would know what your blood pressure is like or how any of your blood tests look. So yes, to this day, we still see on a regular basis people who are diagnosed for the first time when they actually have a complication. And it's always a a shame to see because you realize that if we could turn back time, the situation could have been very different. Yeah, and I imagine COVID is really not helping the situation because people, you know, how do you feel comfortable getting these tests done or dealing with your health when, you know, there are restrictions in in simply leaving your home? And that's where the the beauty of virtual contact has has been really, really useful. Even for myself in my office, I have not had to cancel a single appointment for follow-up because everybody has a phone. Not everybody necessarily has a computer with a webcam and internet, but everybody has a phone. So therefore, I'm still able to stay in touch with my patients and, and do the things we need to do. From a blood test perspective, the labs have remained open, and it's a matter of uh, making an appointment for many of the labs. And of course, safety measures have been put into place. So the usual care can continue to happen safely, and that's a very important message to get out there. I've heard of circumstances where they will, uh, people will come to your house and do blood tests in home. Are you doing that in your practice? So that service is available from some of the labs. Yeah. They do re- require that certain qualifications be met for that, because obviously that's a very uh, that could be a very large group of people. But if there yeah. are mobility issues, uh, then absolutely that could be requested. What are some of the common cardiovascular and type 2 diabetes issues that you're seeing in your patients right now? So there is the maintaining glucose control aspect is always, or sugar control is always something that we need to work on. I think in the early stages of COVID, that was a bit of a struggle because of the the mental health and psychological stress of the whole situation. I find that's actually improved. And if anything, this might have helped some people because they're eating at home, they're not eating out, uh, they're able to cook for themselves. Like They're actually learning skills they hadn't had before. Uh, So I think there actually are positives to come out of this entire situation and people realizing that they can measure stuff at home as well. They can measure their blood pressure, they can monitor their weight, they can measure their blood sugar. So there are things that people are taking control of, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We have time for one last question, and that is for our listeners, what should they do if they have type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular risks? They should speak to their healthcare team about strategies they can implement for themselves. And that would include lifestyle things, food choices, physical activity, achieving a healthy body weight. But that'll also include certain medications that have been proven to reduce that risk. 
from a preventative perspective and then understanding that it is for prevention. And therefore, even if my numbers are at target, I should still continue with these. And then to that, knowing your numbers and knowing what those targets are and everybody's striving for the same goal. And again, for our listeners, the website that has all the information that would be a great source of information, what is that? So it's diabetes.ca, which is the Diabetes Canada website. And on there, you can search for a number of tools that can be useful for self-assessment. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, doctor. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. That was Dr. Alice Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss what to look for in a health and wellness product on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. LifeChoice Professional Therapeutic Medicine was founded in 1986 by Eldon Dahl, a doctorate of natural medicine, in order to provide naturopathic medicines for his patients. Today, LifeChoice's commitment remains unchanged, providing completely unique licensed products which distinguish themselves as an effective alternate to allopathic medicine without the side effects. LifeChoice remains dedicated to using only the finest USP pharmaceutical-grade ingredients and fermented amino acids in therapeutic formulations and produced to the highest quality standards. For more information, visit LifeChoice.net. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Eldon Dahl is a doctorate of natural medicine and founder and chief executive officer of Life Choice Limited. Eldon graduated as a naturopathic doctor in 1988. His pathway towards natural medicine was as a result of witnessing family members struggle with cancer and recognizing that environmental toxins and nutrition correlated with the disease process. Eldon has more than three decades of experience in the naturopathic and natural healing industries. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for allowing me to be your guest. Well, we've got an important topic today, and and I think it's one that's confusing for a lot of listeners, and that is, you know, determining the efficacies and and what to look for in health and wellness products. So I'm glad, given your experience, that you're here today to help us with it. Perfect. Why did you enter the natural health industry? Didn't you begin in practice as a naturopathic doctor? As, As you said in my interview, I entered the health industry in an effort to heal the people to create an alternative to pharmaceutical drugs due to the seeing of cancer in the family and in people that I, that I knew. And I graduated as a naturopath in 1988 and opened my clinic. And at that time, my caseload was mainly chronic after they exhausted the medical system. And the products I was trained to use in school were not available in Canada. And because of the urgent need of my patients, I ordered raw materials and compounded formulas for my patients' needs, and this was really the basis of life choice. Yeah, you and I met each other when I started the magazine in 2007. I have memories of you know meeting you at the trade shows and having conversations with you, but you've been in this industry for 35 years. Maybe you can explain to the listeners how it's changed concerning product quality. Well, it's actually changed quite a bit, but most people wouldn't 
recognizes the changes. Uh, when China entered the raw material picture, say in the mid-90s, a series of changes took place. Prices were lowered. When this attracted, you know, the, the suppliers, the manufacturers, and this was reflected in the product quality with the lower prices. And an example of that is amino acids used to be made by fermentation, and they were produced from sugar cane or sugar beets, and they were vegan. And when China entered the, the industry, they produced chemical extraction amino acids using sewage sludge. Now, that, that, I said that right, sewage sludge, as a, as a, to, to grow the, the, the amino acids from either duck hair, horse hair, or human hair. And they were no longer vegan, and they were no longer free form for cellular absorption. So you had to take more to get absorbed how the, the fermentation was because it was based on enzyme activity. The enzymes were really low, say five enzymes uh, with chemical extraction compared to 30 enzymes with fermentation. And the plant-based raw materials were gradually released with synthetic-produced uh, raw materials. And this changed how the products were absorbed to the cells. So it was a very big change. So let's take your example, the amino acids. If our listeners are, are going into the market and they're looking for an amino acid, what this, should they be looking for in the label to avoid uh, an amino acid that's been derived from sludge? Gosh. Yeah, you know, they should look for where it says that it's made by fermentation. Uh, I know I've seen some brands say that it's free form, but if it's not produced by fermentation, it can't be free form. Free form means it's delivered to the cells without converting in the body first by using a, a form of enzymes that, from our body, extracting enzymes which are already in low supply. So it has to say fermentation, produced by fermentation. You'll see by the reflection of the price. Okay, so then accordingly, if it doesn't say fermentation, we shouldn't assume that it has been derived from fermentation process. Is that right? Right. Okay. So your company claims professional therapeutic medicine. That, that's sort of the basis of, of, of the, the brand of products that you have. What makes them natural medicines? Well, the thing is, Health Canada does not set the standard of raw materials. So they could be radiated, genetically modified, or on the flip side, they can be of the highest possible USP pharmaceutical grade. And the other grades are food grade or feed grade. And a product can only be as good as the raw material used within in the supplementation. And really, sadly, most supplements today source from China. The raw materials are using feed-grade material. And so it doesn't have the science based in it. And this is why you know, the science, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the pharma knocks the health industry and say, well, you guys don't have the science. Look at because they know how it's changed dramatically over the years. When you, they produce a drug, it's only with USP pharmaceutical grade. And we use that standard on all our stuff. Up. Our products are higher, but we have the science based in the product because we Health Canada allows the, the use of both. And then that's what I find really very cool because, you know, they don't care the, the lower the standard, but they don't care if you can use high standard, and that's where we go with it. So, again, if somebody's looking for a higher grade or pharmaceutical grade or to avoid the feed grade, for example, what should they be looking for in the labels? Is it as overt as saying literally that, or are there some code words that we need to look for? USP pharmaceutical grade should be on, on the label. And 
you know, as you mentioned, the flip side of that is you're going to have to pay for it, correct? Yeah, it is more expensive. Sometimes up to 10 times the price for raw materials we pay. Like tryptophan, I can buy it for $17 a kilo. I pay over $250 for the, the raw material we use by fermentation. Okay, let's skip ahead to to another sort of common item that people buy, and that's multivitamins. What are some of the differences between multivitamins in the Canadian market? Well, uh, we, we produce what's called the next generation super multivitamin. What it is, is it's organic and plant-based. So if you were to compare most B vitamins today, most of them are using synthetic material. And uh, we had calls after we launched our, our plant-based one. They were calling and saying, why isn't your, your, your bees coming out in my urine? I don't see it turning yellow. And so they believed that they would see and, and judge the product based on what was coming out of their body instead of what was being absorbed to the body. And so what, what the body recognizes is, as a synthetic, as a toxin, and it pushes it out. And I know the industry says, oh, well, it's water-soluble, so we only use what, is, what, what the body needs, and then the rest is excreted. But that's not true. It's a synthetic. The body has to convert that within in our system. So it's, it's a good example. Like if you were to eat a steak and it's rich in B vitamins, you would be surprised if your urine started turning yellow, I think, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. But, but it's a food. So a food gets absorbed up to 95% to the cells compared to a synthetic B vitamin will be maximum about 20% to the cells. That's why you have B100s, B50s, because by the time it's absorbed to the cells, you have 20% of that going to the cells. The rest is excreted or not used. So in other words, it isn't necessarily the dosage, but it's the nature of how the B vitamin is derived as to how bioavailable it's going to be for the body. Is that correct? It's exactly right. How the product is, the raw materials, is critical for absorption, for for a therapeutic response. All right, that's interesting. Let's jump to a, another uh, common product, and that's melatonin. So what's the difference of melatonins that are sold in the Canadian market? Well, melatonin is one of the top-selling natural health products in North America, maybe the world. And the common Chinese raw material, melatonin. It's either it comes from an unknown source, you can't get where it's sourced from, or an animal source. And again, price is the, is the, is the differing factor. It's usually sold for about $170 a kilo. And associated with, and we found this out when we did a public trade show, we're handing out melatonin, and people were saying, I can't take that because I get side effects. I get nightmares, muscle spasms, clenching of the teeth. And so it's uh, what we source is uh, we found is a vegan patented melatonin, and it's backed by clinical studies on the material. And we pay over a thousand dollars U.S. per kilo, so this is five times the price. But what it does, it starts from L-tryptophan, that's a serotonin releaser, and it takes a different pathway within the body for releasing serotonin, and it does not shut down your body's own production. So in reality, the side effects are not from the melatonin itself, but from from the sourcing of the melatonin. Okay. So we have time for one last question, and this is something I know that's near and dear to you, and that is, this pertains to getting product licenses under the new regime. Which of your products was the most difficult and challenging to get those to, to get? Oh, 
well, the, the most uh, difficult was thyroidine, thyroid gland. Because if you, if you look at what's licensed by Health Canada, there are 82 NPN licensed products on the market with the name thyroid. And only two contain raw desiccated thyroid. The others are either precursors or modulators. And this is because all thyroid gland products are classified by Health Canada as prescription drugs. And this is those that are with hormones or without. It took me and our team over four years uh, battling Health Canada. I call it my David and Goliath story. I know it, yep. And in the end, we managed to do a switch to mission from prescription drug status to natural health product status. And this is the first time that ever that has been done. And, and the reason why we push so hard for a thyroid product over the counter is because 80% of the population are thyroid deficient in one way or another. Eldon, that's all the time we have today. But if people are interested in, in the work that you do, what's the website they should go to? It's lifechoice.net. And they can go to our videos under the LifeChoice YouTube channel, LifeChoice.net.ca videos. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jamie. It's my pleasure. That was Dr. Eldon Dahl. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the treatment of meniscus tears on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Valentine's Day isn't the only time to think about your heart. Over 2.4 million Canadians are affected by heart disease. Symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest pains, discomfort in your arms, back, neck, or jaw are not to be ignored. Seeking medical assistance is always the safest choice. It could save your life. Don't die of doubt. Don't hesitate. Follow your heart and call 911 at the first sign of heart attack or stroke. Medtronic Canada is committed to alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for patients with heart disease. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, she has had extensive experience in dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie. I'm trying to survive this COVID pandemic and, uh, you know, not get any kind of overuse injury uh, sitting at my desk. (laughs) Yeah, I know. The only muscle I'm overusing is the gluteus maximus. But we're here to talk about something else today, which is in a different part of the body, and that is the meniscus. So I know what it is, but for those who are listening who don't, can you explain it? For sure. So a meniscus is a structure within the knee. It's a fibrocartilaginous disc, which acts as a shock absorber and a secondary stabilizer. And there is a disc on both the inside and outside of the knee that sits between the thigh bone, the femur, and the tibia, the leg bone. And their job is really to distribute load within the knee. 
so that your knee doesn't wear out. So you hear it apocryphally, but, you know, somebody will go skiing or they'll injure themselves. And we talk about ACLs and MCLs. But one of the things that you can do to your knee is tearing a meniscus, right? For sure. It's actually incredibly common. And there are, there are sort of two common ways that you can injure your meniscus. One is traumatic injury. Just like you mentioned, you can wipe out skiing and twist your knee and tear. You can tear a ligament and the meniscus at the same time or just the meniscus itself. But probably by far in a way the most common way that the meniscus is injured is with degenerative wear and tear micro trauma so repetitive bending and twisting movements will overload the meniscus and slowly lead to a tear uh, and it's interesting if we look at people over the age of 50 who have a little bit of arthritis in their knee and we do an MRI, over 60% of these people will have a meniscus tear. I always understood a meniscus tear occurred when you sort of like you, you land awkwardly or you're twisting, right? So how is it that somebody gets a wear and tear injury that involves sort of like an awkward twist? That seems counterintuitive. So if you, it all depends on how you load that meniscus. So ah, the meniscus okay. is, is sitting there and say you suddenly land on it and there's too much force, you can actually tear the meniscus um, away from the capsule. And okay. it's interesting, uh, the meniscus has an interesting structure. On the outer one-third, there's a blood supply. On the inner two-thirds, there's no blood supply. So we call the outer third the red zone and the inner two-thirds the white zone. So if you have a traumatic injury where you twist and you land and you load the knee, or say a giant football player lands on your knee and, and twists it, you can actually overload the junction where the meniscus attaches to the capsule and tear it away. And so you'll get bleeding from that. Your knee will blow up and get really painful and swollen. Mm. And that's a meniscal injury. So if one were to get and have diagnosed a meniscal injury, how do we treat it? So that's going to depend on a number of factors. The first thing that I, I should say is that no matter how you injure your meniscus, whether it's traumatic or atraumatic, you want to look at how you're loading your knee because mm -hmm. in the end, that's critical. So doing some exercise to make sure that you're moving your ankle and moving your hip properly so that you're not putting too much pressure on your knee because the knee is often the victim of a problem in your hip and your ankle yep. um, is critical. So exercise is one, but for those who need an operation, we have to look at several factors. One is, is the tear through the red zone or the white zone? So we can do an arthroscopy, which is using a small fiber optic scope. It's about the size of a pen. Mm -hmm. You put it inside, and we can see if the tear is through the red zone. And the importance of that is if there's a blood supply, there's the potential for the tissue to heal. If the tear is through the white zone, there's no blood supply. And so there's really no potential for that tissue to heal. You can put a suture in it, but it's just going to break eventually because the body can't go in there and repair the tear. So we will arthroscopically look inside the joint and determine is the tear through the red zone or the white zone. And if it's red zone, we'll repair. And if it's white zone, we resect. Now, whether you're a candidate to actually have the scope, we, we figure out by a number of factors, your age, your activity level, do you have um, associated um, arthritis? 
So we tend to be more aggressive doing surgery in younger patients. And patients, younger, I mean under 40. I hate to even say that. but Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm, Uh-oh. On, I'm on the wrong I, side of that equation. I, yeah. Me too. I kind of keep wanting to move that up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, one of the most critical things for me is whether you have arthritis or not. If you have arthritis in the joint already and the surgeon goes in and takes out the piece of the meniscus, they can't fix the actual arthritic damage. Mm. And so the studies are really becoming quite apparent right now that there's not a role for arthroscopic partial meniscectomy in a patient who already has arthritis in the joint. Doesn't a torn meniscus make the arthritis that much worse? Like somebody has arthritis and a torn meniscus, that's a lot of pain to deal with, isn't it? Well, that's a great question because you really have to figure out where the pain's coming from. Right. Sometimes the way that the meniscus is torn, it's not mechanically unstable. So the piece of the tissue is not flipping in and out of the, of the right. joint. Okay. It's not causing any more damage to the articular surface. It's not causing any swelling. And it's really a red herring. And that's why it's so important if you do have some arthritis in your knee and you're over 50, over 40, and you've got pain and they do an MRI, you've got to correlate the physical exam in your history, where the pain is and where the pain is with the MRI findings. So if they find a meniscus tear on the medial meniscus, say the inside of your joint, Mm -hmm. but your pain isn't located there and you have no tenderness to palpation there, I'd be suspicious that the pain was really coming more from the arthritis. Got it. scope wouldn't help you. So if somebody has arthritis and you're right, you know, say that they've got mechanical symptoms, like every time they bend down to pick something up off the floor and they twist a little, they get this sudden jab of pain and a feeling of locking where maybe there's a the fragment moving into the joint, kind of like the princess and the pea. Yep. You know, then you could benefit by having the um, scope to remove that fragment of the meniscus, and that will temporarily improve the symptoms. But it's not going to change the long-term outcome of that person's knee. What happens in the long term if you have a torn meniscus that isn't dealt with? So the problem with having a torn meniscus is you lose that load sharing or bearing effect that ah. it plays in the knee. So you increase the load on the articular cartilage, which will lead to the development of arthritis. So if you tear a meniscus, you are at greater risk of developing degenerative arthritis in the future. And it's a slow process. It takes 15 to 20 years, but it happens. And I can't uh, emphasize enough, again, the importance of how you load your knee. And that that means how you move and doing exercises to change how you load your knee if you have a meniscus tear is critical. So what type of exercises are we talking about? So a lot of times when you initially have the injury, the key is to get your quadricep, and particularly the vastus medialis obliquus, the VMO, Mm -hmm. firing up. And I find this is critical. I used to do this for patients right after surgery, is I'd get them contracting this muscle because it helps to control swelling, and that controls pain, and then your range of motion comes back. But then you also have to focus on the glutes, We mentioned those earlier today, the glutes, and also the foot and ankle. A lot of times what happens is people have poor mobility in their ankle. And when we look at the body, it's an alternative function of mobility and stability. So the ankle and the hip are supposed to be mobile. The knee is stable. And we lose mobility in our ankle and our hip from sitting around a lot. And so when we lose the mobility in our hip and our ankle, what happens is the knee has to compensate. So we overload the knee and it wears out. Well, you know, that was starting to happen with me because I think I've told you before, like I I had Achilles issues and then all of a sudden, you know, even though I could sort of work through a run, 
with the Achilles, I started feeling it in my knees and I realized I was kind of done with running because the ankle was impacting the knee and it was only getting worse. So yes, I hear you. What about surgery? If one were to have a surgical repair to a torn meniscus, would that be able to reverse or prevent arthritis from developing over time? Well, if you're one of the fortunate people that has torn the meniscus through the red zone, then there is the potential to heal, and you'll then preserve the meniscus. So if you've been able to preserve the meniscus and you preserve the meniscus function, then there is, you get the benefit of having your meniscus. But unfortunately, the vast majority of arthroscopic surgery really deals with taking the meniscus out. And it is a challenge to get the tissue to heal. So you really gotta you really gotta focus a lot on the movement and keeping the pressure off that part of your knee. And are there any downsides to having the surgery? Well, generally, it's a relatively minor surgery. Certainly, if you do a repair, which is probably twenty percent of meniscal tears, it's a bigger deal. But the chance of horrible complications is really quite rare, probably less than 2%. With the repair of the meniscus, there's a chance it may not heal, and you might have to have a second operation to then actually remove the meniscus tissue. But, you know, it's an operation. You want to avoid it if you can. But then if you can get the benefit of keeping your meniscus, that's a positive. So it's really important that you have this discussion with your surgeon and are, are well aware of what your expectations are. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're going to come back next month. What do you want to talk about then? We could talk about painful stiff shoulders. Yeah. Why don't we do that? Okay. Terrific. That was Dr. Aaron Boynton. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss building muscle as we age on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
Jody Farber's passion for fitness started with her training for track and field in grade school, which continued throughout her life, including her Jane Fonda phase. She's currently certified in Pilates, spin and yoga, as well as personal training. She teaches HIIT classes, Tabata, full body strength classes, stretch classes, and pre and postnatal classes at the Granite Club. Welcome back to the show, my friend. It's been a while. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jamie. How have you been? You know, all things considered, I've been hunky dory. I've Fantastic. been I've been doing fine. You know, we talk. Yeah. Uh, I I've been busying myself working out at home, and and I think a lot of people who are stuck in home are actually, and this is a good thing, thinking more about their physical fitness. I think it's amazing how we all have pivoted into doing what we need to do and get it done, which is which is pretty awesome when the world is upside down and backwards. I think in that context, though, there's a misconception out there that as we get older, and I say we, you and I together, you know, it's difficult or impossible to put muscle on. And hmm. I thought I'd bring you on the show so that we could talk about that. Okay? Fantastic. Absolutely. So... First of all, it's so important uh, to maintain and build muscle. I've got you know 50 reasons. I'm not going to say them all, but I will talk about a few of them yep. that are so important. Everyone needs to be doing this, no matter what your age is. Uh, like after 30, between 30 and 50, we lose 10% of our muscle mass per decade. That's a lot. Yeah. Right. That's if we don't do anything. Right. Like just naturally, that's what happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... My key to my well-being is movement. Just move, right? And uh, for so many reasons, mood, self-esteem, mental health, uh, even your immune system is boosted when you have muscle, joint function, creative thinking, confidence, memory, even pain resistance is one of the benefits of uh, maintaining um, muscle mass. Balance, coordination, a big one is your sex drive. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A dementia. <laughs> Self-control lowers blood pressure, but most of all, it just makes you feel good, right? Yep. And that's that's my key. Just I want to feel good um, as, I, uh, as we age. That's the bottom line. Yeah, and, and there's one that's on the list uh, that people don't think about, and that is weight loss. It seems counterintuitive, right? Because muscle mass is heavier, right? Like you think, oh, no, I don't want to get muscular because then I'm, I'm going to get even bigger. But the right. truth of the matter is it takes more energy to maintain muscle mass than it does fat. Absolutely. And, and I uh, don't use a scale with any of my clients. So it's about how you feel. Right. And uh, we as women can't bulk to the point of getting huge. It's just not, we don't have enough testosterone, et cetera. I won't get into the science of it. So not to be frightened of getting large like a weightlifter if you're lifting heavy weights. That just doesn't happen in women. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, our ideals, right? Like, and I don't mean this in a sexist way, but like sort of like, being body beautiful, I think the perception has changed. Like women who have muscle, I think are perceived differently than perhaps they were in years past. Like I think it is attractive when women are strong. I I, I personally do. Yeah, fit is the new sexy, right? Being fit is the new sexy. So with that in mind, I've created a, a, a program and programs, depending on the individual, to help you grow and maintain your muscle mass. If somebody's thinking about 
you know, not bulking up, but putting on some muscle or, or building a little bit of muscle. What do you think reasonable expectations are as we get older? Okay, so it's possible, obviously, to build muscle uh, at any age, and especially uh, over 50. Um, and you can have a good time doing it. So weight training done properly can counter age-related muscle atrophy. I have a program um, where we do four to six days a week, 30 min- minutes of strength training, and you can add noticeable lean muscle mass in around five months. And, and when you're working with men or women, are you looking at different types of programs? Because obviously we, we put on muscle differently, right, in different places. Absolutely. Um, I always look at the client first and see what their flexibility is. I look at a lot of things. I'm just looking at some of my notes because I did write them down. But just to speak organically, how well they are with range of motion. Um, Some people even have a hard time when I start with clients from being down on the floor to getting up. Right. So I work on, on movements to incorporate strength. For functional training, I call it. So there's something called a get-up. It's literally called a get-up. And it's a great move that I start with to get up safely. And then we can add weight. So really the range of motion, going through the motions, and then you can add weight to that movement to uh, gain the muscle. Well, let's talk about some of the considerations because, you know, as we get older, there are obviously factors that are impacting on our ability to build muscle. What are some of the considerations that people should be thinking about if if they're entertaining the idea of of putting on some muscle? Right. So the programs need to be calibrated to one's age and your current physical condition for sure, flexibility, and whether they have any pre-existing injuries. A properly designed training will increase strength while preserving your flexibility and range of motion. And also you want to avoid uh, any risks of overuse that can create injury, right? And the most important thing when I teach or train is never, ever compromise form. It's always form over function. So I'm never going to take a uh, 105-pound woman and have her lift 30, 40, 50 pounds, uh, especially like overhead. So you keep that in in mind when you're working with specific clients. Right. And, you know, also as we get older, you know, there has to be, you you have to build in rest. You also have to, and I don't mean sleep, but I mean actual rest days. You have to consider, you know, how long are you going to be exercising for and how frequently and, and, you know, changes to your diet to help support, you know, muscle growth. Because these are all factors, no matter how old, old you are, but I think become more important as we get older, right? Because there's less margin for error. Absolutely. And nutrition is very, very high on my list. I even recommend they go see uh, a nutritionist because this is serious stuff, right? It's it's our life and health and well-being. I recommend definitely taking some antioxidants. I'm not a a doctor, but uh, I have been to one and I have somebody who I work with. Vitamins A, C, and E, fish oil, glutamine for heart and joint health are really important. Um, And also lean protein uh, as part of your diet because that's crucial to muscle development. So those are the main things. And water, water, and more water, of course, to keep everything uh, flowing and glowing and, and moving. Okay, do you have any go-to exercises or programs or aspects of the program that you think are... Absolutely, absolutely. So first of all, I recommend, um, to get specific, 12 to 15 reps 
of a multi-joint exercise. So they call it a man maker. Oh, yeah. They call it a person maker. Yeah. And that consists of a few different movements. You put them all together. And then you also create your cardio. So that's how I kind of work. I don't believe in running marathons. It's, that's just not my thing. It's great if you can um, or do. But my way of, of uh, maintaining is to do multi-purpose joint exercises. Right. Um, I always start with lightweight. Yep. Uh, you can even use resistance bands as well. And then you start loading, right? And also, you need to break a sweat. For sure. That, that's, that, you know, well, I, if, you're, if you're doing man makers, I have a man maker uh, workout that I do on Sundays. It's absolutely my hardest one. It's brutal. Okay, okay so the plank rows. Well, yeah. Okay. So for those who don't know, a, ma- a man maker, it's almost like two or three exercises rolled into one. So okay. for those who understand what a burpee is, it, it's a variation of a burpee. So you kind of start in a high push up position and you have weights in your hands while they're on the floor and you, you sort of pull them towards your body one at a time and then you do a push up. And then the second part of the man maker is then you jump to a squat <laughs> yes, and you, you bring you bring your weights to your shoulders and you do a thruster, which means you stand up with the weights and bring them over your head. Right. So it's a toughie. And if you're adding weight to that, it's 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 brutal. I, I've had to work up to it. I've been doing I, I started this one about six months ago and, and I've been increasing sort of the intensity and the numbers, but it's a killer. Isn't it great though? I mean it is. and you, you break a sweat. I mean that's oh, cardio. Yeah. It, it creates cardio. So stuff like that, movements like that, I'm all about. My daughter, Alexa, who's also a trainer, we get together usually once a day and come up with these unusual but easy-to-do combinations, and Manmaker is one of them. So I'm glad that you're doing it. Add that with, like, a rowing machine. Oh, that's or, what I'm doing. The workout. See? Yeah, you got the, it. The workout is, is 500-meter row, 10 Manmakers, 10 times. You're amazing. That's perfect. There you go. Yeah, it's a killer. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And then, of course, adding something like the get up, which is um, important for um, function. Uh, you know, you're on the floor. Yep. How do you get up safely? And uh, you put those three moves together, your man maker, your rower, and the get up. You've got yourself a really, really good um, exercise program. Jody, if, if people are interested in getting in touch with you and, and perhaps working with you, is, is there an email or a website they can go to? Well, it's my email, Jode, small j, J-O-D period, Farber, F-A-R-B-E-R-1, at gmail.com. Or I'm on Instagram as Jody Farber one Either way, I'd, I'd love to, uh, anybody wants to reach out. I will be there for you. I'll get back to you. Fantastic. And I've worked out with Jody before. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting and very challenging <laughs> and fun workout. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, so my pleasure. And stay safe and uh, keep fit. Will do. Much okay. thanks. Thanks. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Alice Cheng, Eldon Dahl, Dr. Aaron Boynton, and Jody Farber. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The January-February issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at 
Next week on the show, we'll discuss the COVID-19 vaccines, the connection between anxiety and sex, and tolerating uncertainty. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.